everyone. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. Let me tell you, I am so excited about today's episode. I had the pleasure of speaking with the incredible dynamic duo, Lynn Twist and Alexander McCobin. Let me start with Lynn Twist. If you're not familiar with her, oh man, you need to be. She is a global visionary. She is committed to alleviating poverty, ending world hunger, and supporting social justice and environmental sustainability. She's the founder of the Soul of Money Institute. She's worked with over 100,000 people in 50 countries. She's worked with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, billionaires, you name it. And she is making such a difference in the world. And her transformative book, The Soul of Money, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Life, has been featured in over 10 films. And she is so, so incredible. And in as I was preparing for our podcast interview. I had her book for several years and I pulled it back out and I forgot that our girl Brene Brown wrote an endorsement on the front cover and then the image that I had was blurry so I went to Google Images to see if there was a better headshot to put in the episode notes and there's pictures of Lynn not just with Mother Teresa which we knew about that work but there's pictures of her with Oprah Winfrey and Maya Angelou and the Dalai Lama. And she's just had such an incredible reach and influence because of who she is and what she advocates for. And she is just amazing, amazing all around. And it was such an honor to be able to spend time with her. And I know that you will feel the same. And then Alexander McCobin, the CEO of Conscious Capitalism, doing incredible work to elevate humanity through business. And Lynn now happens to be on the board of Conscious Capitalism, and it was such a great discussion of the intersection of business and activism and how we can really make this world a better place and how we can pivot and we can find purpose and advocate for purpose and make a difference in this world. And so whether you are a business leader or not, there's so many great nuggets in this conversation. And I walked away inspired, encouraged, hopeful, and I'm sure you will feel the same. Enjoy. Thank you for being here. I was telling Alexander Lynn that I feel like I've been orbiting you for a while. And then when I was prepping over the weekend, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm just even more excited. So I want to kind of kick it off just as, like I said, it's a really kind of interesting way. I call this my podcast family that I didn't even realize how interconnected we are. So Alexander, I think you and I met, I was thinking, I think it's about five years ago, wasn't it? At the Barry Waymiller, it was one of their Leadership Institute courses. And I remember we met like in some opening, I don't know, icebreaker type thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love conscious capitalism and we're a huge fan of it. And we talk about it in our books and in our trainings and whatnot. So I know we started to uh, get more involved. And then as I got to know Bob Chapman more, who happens to be episode two's interview, Lynn, he uh, told me about your book and said, oh my gosh, phenomenal. You have to get Lynn's book. And so I immediately ordered it. I said, I have no idea who Lynn is, but Bob recommends it. Of course I will, right? And I love Raj and love conscious capitalism and whatnot. And then it was funny because uh, next week's episode that's going to air is Laura Hall. And when I told her I was interviewing today, she, and I wrote this down, she said, oh my gosh, Lynn is my conscious godmother, especially after spending t- 10 days together in the Amazon rainforest last year. So I was like, oh my gosh, it's all just intertwined and I love it. So, <laughs> so I thought since Alexander, I met you first, I just thought I would give you an opportunity to talk about kind of um, why you're so passionate about conscious capitalism, what brought you to it. Um, and then, and then I would love to kind of Lynn get your perspective of why you joined the, um, the movement. Good. Great. Sounds great. 
Yeah. So, so Alexander, tell me about, tell me about what brought you to, to conscious capitalism and, and, and where it's going and why you're so passionate about it. So my route to conscious capitalism was a little circuitous. When I was a teenager, I had entrepreneurial instincts. I started and ran several small businesses and had fun with it, but I thought they were just fun side projects. I was young and idealistic and so wanted to change the world and at the time didn't see business as a way of doing it. I thought becoming a philosophy professor, that's how I can change the world. So I went off to grad school and as I was writing my dissertation, I kept getting drawn back into business though. I kept getting drawn to business ethics as a topic for my dissertation. And when the book Conscious Capitalism was published in 2013 and the first Conscious Capitalism conference was organized, I went thinking it was gonna be research for my dissertation, but was so inspired by the business leaders that I met there who were taking these abstract principles that I was reading and writing about and putting it into practice that within a year I had left the PhD program, I dedicated myself to building up one of the organizations I had started when I was younger in a conscious capitalist way. And over the next several years, built it into a multi-million dollar organization with thousands of student groups that we were supporting around the world, which was incredible. But then when conscious capitalism was reaching an inflection point and wanted to really become a movement of thousands, tens of thousands, ultimately millions of business leaders who are changing both the practice and perception of capitalism to elevate humanity, it was an immediate draw for me to come in and do what I can to support this. And it's been incredible to watch this movement develop because a decade ago, when this was first being coined and leaders were starting to get together, these ideas weren't taken very seriously in business. The idea of a higher purpose and looking at all of your stakeholders, not just your shareholders, was seen as a little woo-woo, a little out there, not really what business was about. But nowadays, we're seeing more and more businesses embrace the need for a higher purpose and to support all of their stakeholders. The business world is coming around to this. And so the question isn't, should businesses adopt conscious capitalism, but how do they do it and how quickly can they do it now, which is such a different and inspiring position to be in compared to when this movement was first started. Yeah, well, and it's been so fun to see it grow. And I would think as like the individual worker, individual consumer that, okay, I don't own a business or I'm not a CEO, but you're seeing this, they want to be involved with conscious businesses. I want, if I'm going to spend my money or I'm going to go work somewhere, I want it to be something that's going to be good for stakeholders, good for our planet. Uh, fulfill me, those types of things. So I think, yeah, it's 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 awesome, and and that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I love you know I love conscious capitalism. So, so Lynn, t- I want I'm going to talk about your book in a minute. But how did you come to get involved with conscious capitalism? Um, gosh, I was I was thinking now, how did I? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there's a, a a kind of a, a a through line here. I I went to a conference. Um, years ago I, I don't know how when did conscious capitalism start and alexander what was the year 2013 was it in san francisco no i went to esalen for what was called the conscious capitalism conclave uh and i don't know what, what year that was but uh it was raj was there and john Mackey, and i think they convened it and byron katie and i were the only people who weren't ceos of a company and i um 
was kind of like, what am I doing here? How, how did I get here? And it was re uh, really the result of reading Soul of Money, which isn't so much about corporations and business. It doesn't really, ha I don't have that background. Um, but anyway, the, the meeting was really impactful for me. It was three, I think two or three days, and it was in this uh, a very small meeting. There were probably 20 CEOs, um, and it was very, very impactful. And I saw what was happening in the minds and hearts of these incredible people, most of them men, not all, but um, how much they wanted to have business transform. And I uh, myself had been working for many, 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 many years in the um, in the activist nonprofit sector, I call it the social profit sector, um, and uh, had had really not had a lot of experience with business. But uh, when people made a lot of money, because when you're in the social profit sector, then you're looking to see where am I going to fundraise for my cause. I would um, hook up with people who were very successful business people, but usually I was hooking up with them through their foundation or through just their um, their philanthropic generosity and not getting involved in the in the business end of things. And then I went to another conference, which I think Raj invited me to, or Jack Canfield organized it. Um, and it's, it was part of the Transformational Leadership Council, which I'm a member of. And I was once again amidst uh, 60, this time, CEOs. Um, and, uh, and Bob Chapman was there. And he spoke, uh, Ra Raj spoke, John Mackey spoke, uh, all these amazing people spoke, and what they were speaking about was consciousness, was spirituality, actually. It was really very, very powerful, and I was a speaker, too, uh, and Jack, I was a kind of an odd speaker compared to everybody else, and Jack Canfield had given me something like 30 minutes, and I started to do my Soul of Money talk, and it really, it really did actually land with people. I was sort of shocked because it was sort of a different kind of look at money and business. And um, and so then they gave me uh, another half hour and then they gave me another 15 minutes. And I was, uh, <laughs> They're like, we love you. Keep going. <laughs> it was a long time. It was just before lunch. Then at, then at the very end of it, I, uh, I got very moved by the reception I got. Uh, and I made a declaration. I stood up in front of everybody and I said, I am going to defang the business community for the activist community, and I'm going to defang the activist community for the business community because we must work together. The problems the world faces are too big for us to be arguing with each other about stuff. We need to bond together and move forward uh, uh, in, in the passion of the activist community and the heart. Uh, can infuse business and the productivity and skill and strategic power and muscle of business can inform the activist community, and we can solve every problem in the world together. So I made this big declaration, and Raj was, of course, there, and he heard me. Um, and so then every- So you're not getting away then, if Raj hears you. <laughs> and then there, and then, you know, of course, that's where I met Bob Chapman, and Bob Chapman and I became great friends, and I began um, hanging out with him, and he took me on his wonderful journey that he takes people on to show uh, how, how business is, is a force for good. And uh, I got involved in every, I gave talks at his company and I got very involved with him. And then I went to Aspen <clears throat> for one of his wonderful gatherings. And uh, uh, as you probably all know, he's so generous and he brings everybody together. And at this Aspen meeting, uh, uh, it was a, 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 I think it was a dinner after a conference. Uh, John Mackey sat on my left and Raj sat on my right at a dinner and they said, you are going to join the board of conscious capitalism. 
And we're going to talk to you into it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It took me about like 30 seconds to say yes. So they didn't need to talk me into it. Um, and, and I haven't been on the board that long and I've only been to three board meetings. So I'm really getting my, um, my where's, where's my fit? How can I be useful? Uh, but I love working with Alexander. I love Bob Chapman and anything he wants me to do, I'm going to do. I yep. love John Mackey and I love Raj. And so for me, it's been a wonderful place where I can begin to um, uh, do what I said I would do, um, stand up and make sure that these two sectors that sometimes argue with each other and discount each other uh, can come together and really make something happen. I love that. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. And you know, I I also love that they kept having you speak and what it reminds me of, Lynn. And I have to tell you, it was a story that as I was rereading it this weekend, it brought tears to my eyes for the second time. And it was when you were speaking to the executive women at Microsoft, mm -hmm. um, right? Because I think you said that they invited you to stay longer. But I remember I was reading that and I was sitting on my porch and I was actually kind of glad my husband and someone around because I just started crying this weekend. And I was like, oh my gosh. And it reminded me of I, I was in their shoes where last fall, my son, who was nine at the time, had this meltdown and I ended up writing a blog about it. And he goes, you never want to spend time with me. All you want to do is work. And I just went, what the hell am I teaching my mm -hmm. child? And it was a huge reset for me. And we pulled out, I, I know, you know, Brene, I pulled out Brene Brown's a wholehearted parenting manifesto and we hung it up on our wall and I was like, okay, you know what, this is it. And we're going to hit a reset button and this is not what life is about. And so I don't know when I was rereading that I was just, I was brought back to that. And I was thinking about those women, you know, like nannies are raising my kids and I'm, you know, working all the time and whatnot. And I just thought, ugh, you know, there's gotta be a better way and that there's gotta be a better way about capitalism and a better way to, to just live. Um, and so anyway, I was just so, 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 so struck by that. Mm, yeah, well, it's it's an amazing <clears throat> movement, and Alexander's doing an amazing job, and Kip, uh, 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 and Raj, and all, and John. I mean, all of the leaders are really they really mean it. It's not, uh, it's 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 almost the, the the DNA of business will be changed by conscious capitalism more than anything that I know of, and it's so exciting and so powerful and so important, and the world needs it so desperately. So it's a real fit for me, and I hope for everybody. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And there are these incredible leaders who have been practicing conscious capitalism for so long. People are talking about conscious capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, inclusive capitalism today more than ever. And some people think this is a brand new idea. But as Lynn was pointing out, people like John Mackey, Kip Tyndall, and thousands and thousands of business leaders have been imbuing their businesses DNA with a higher purpose and stakeholder orientation for a long time. And what's so important about the conscious capitalist movement today is for those who have this experience to share what has worked and what doesn't with other business leaders that are just coming to it right now. More than ever, we need to connect business leaders with each other in order to elevate their practice of business and to create that future where every business has this in their DNA. Absolutely. Well, and you know what that reminds me of, and I don't know if this was from your book, but it was a quote that at least was attributed to you, Lynn. So uh, I want to read this to you because I was like, oh my gosh, this speaks to everything we're talking about. It said, this is not a time of mere change. This is a time of transformation. And transformation comes not out of scarcity, but out of the context of possibility, responsibility, and sufficiency. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like you're like, I'm brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, that brings me to, so I, I want to talk about, uh, because this podcast is all about how anybody, regardless of their title or role can show up as a leader and make a positive difference. And so we're going to have business leaders. We're going to have individual contributors and everywhere in between. And, and so I want to talk about your book a little bit, the soul of money, because it is truly transformative. And you said, you know, you're not a business person, but yet we all interact with money, but this book is beyond ju- just money. And, and I, one of the things I was so struck by, and you talk about the lie of scarcity and, and this mindset, and I just want to read something. Uh, it might be weird to read something back to you, but there is some stuff that I highlighted. And I was thinking about one of the things that I talk about a lot in my work is this self-limiting narrative that we all tell ourselves that has some level of connectedness to I'm not enough, right, of not being enough. And, but you go beyond just the, I'm not enough with the scarcity. And so you say, no matter who we are or what our circumstances, we swim in conversations about what there isn't enough of. We spend most of the hours and days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. And then you say, before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds race with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. So can you speak a little bit more about this whole lie of scarcity and the toxic myths around it um, that people should be aware of? Well, I think we have a a culture. uh, uh, Our culture is so uh, commercialized now. The money culture is so much about consumerism that um, that we uh, swim in um, what I consider an unconscious, unexamined body of assumptions. So they're unconscious and they're unexamined. And unconscious, unexamined assumptions are the ones you don't even know you have. You actually think that's the truth. So it's almost as if you have a, uh, a certain kind of glasses on uh, and you look through those glasses and what you see is there's not enough time, there's not enough money, there's not enough love, there's not enough sex, there's not enough vacation, there's not enough market share, there's not enough volunteers. There, whatever it is, you look through the there's not enough glasses, the scarcity glasses, and what you see then is there's not enough. Um, and I say when you take off those glasses, it's a different story, but you don't even know you have them on. So it's a, it's a lens. We look through a lens of scarcity, um, and the lens of scarcity, I think, has three toxic myths that we, and this is unconscious and unexamined. So the first toxic myth is there's not enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough sleep. There's not enough this or that. And so we're, um, we're sort of living in a deficit relationship with life and with ourselves. And it starts to get into your psyche, almost into your heart. It's not just there's not enough, we don't have enough, I don't have enough. It's I start to be, starts to be I am not enough. We have a deficit relationship with ourselves. And I, I'd say that the United States in particular fosters this notion with massive consumerism that you just need to keep filling up that empty void with more. So the second toxic myth in the great lie of scarcity, in my view, I call it a lie, is uh, more is better, more more clothes, more black pants, more shoes, more cars, more square feet in our house, more this, more that, more market share, more everything. Now, some of that makes sense, but not when it's unconscious and unexamined. Um, And so one of the industries that I like to point to that's an example of how uh, kind of out of control this more is better second toxic myth in the lie of scarcity is, 
is storage. Storage is a huge industry now. Um, as if we need second place to put all the things we can't fit into our house, you know. We don't even know we have, right? <laughs> and I, and I, I, I like to point out that we have all these millions and millions of homeless people, but we're not building houses for them. We're building houses for the stuff we can't fit in the houses we already have. And the more is better culture is a constant, it's a mindset. It's not, it's not based on need. It's just we absolutely think we must have more of everything. And even people in the multi-billionaire category thinks they, think they need more. I mean, that shows you that it's a mindset because that's so illogical. And then the third toxic myth, I think, is that's just the way that it is, which holds the whole thing in place. So if you think there's not enough, more is better, and that's just the way that it is, then you're in this constant chase all the time for more of almost anything and everything without even realizing it's a mindset rather than a true authentic need. And of yeah. course, the economy's you know rooted in the belief in scarcity. So it it, it and our money system is rooted in scarcity. We uh, you know money's based in debt. Every time a dollar is issued by the Federal Reserve, it's is issued with interest attached attached so that there's always less money in circulation than there is owed. So our money system promotes scarcity. The economy has to grow or it'll collapse. So everything is kind of designed around this, what I call a mythology of scarcity, a lie, that a condition of thinking that has us feel never, never, ever satisfied and constantly clamoring for more, accumulating way more than we need, and, uh, and living in a culture that's kind of out of control. Yeah. So that's uh, what I call the lie of scarcity. Yeah, well, and you see it everywhere. And I think one of the things, and I, I, I highlighted another passage of your book with the, it's just the way it is, because I think this also speaks to beyond when you wrote this book of what's happening in our world today, right? And even in business and how we were resigned with systemic racism and all kinds of oppression. Because you say when something has always been a certain way and tradition, assumptions or habits make it resistant to change, then it seems logical, just commonsensical that, it is the way that it will stay. This is when and where the blindness, the numbness, the trance, and underneath it all, the resignation of scarcity sets in. Resignation mm -hmm. makes us feel hopeless, helpless, and cynical. And mm -hmm. I think, and I think about like the ap apathy. Like I, this is, this is related to this. But I was working with a client um, right after George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor, and I was trying to educate myself on all these things that I never learned growing up as as a white female. And I was meeting with a client and I had been advocating for having these conversations. And there was uh, an African-American man who later reached out to me and he said, you know, I actually have to thank you for bringing this up. He said, because I've just become apathetic that that's just the way it is. And you've actually woken me up again mm. that, you know what? And I, and I, so that made me think of that and how many people have been woken up, whether it's about trying to be an advocate now, you said activism and business coming together to be an advocate for humanity or to say we can go about business a different way or we can show up in our lives a different way. I mean, I feel like that it is the way it is, does get people apathetic, but I also feel like there's there's been this awakening and this is a time of transformation. Yeah, well, the pandemic is, is such a teacher. Uh, you know, it's created tremendous suffering. Uh, people have died, people have lost loved ones, people have gotten really sick. Uh, on the other hand, it has interrupted and disrupted a culture that's lost its way, a culture that's gone crazy, a culture that's um, taking more from the earth than she, than she can regenerate, which is 
putting us in, uh, in incredible risk uh, as, as, a, as a human family, as a species, and as a world. So, so many um, gifts from the pandemic that we must realize that we can receive uh, and make transformational change like, you know, we couldn't have imagined this year. And here we are. Um, and if we adjust, you know, we have to adapt to the way it is a little bit. But if we adapt too much to, to the way it is, once again, we'll become complacent and apathetic and not realize this disruption is a huge, incredible teaching. It's not happening to us. It's happening for us. Uh, and that's a powerful way to look at what's going on. So we have a big opportunity right now. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I want to just jump in because what I was saying before that there have been people working on conscious capitalism for much longer than the than the attention it's getting right now. Lynn is one of them. And everything Lynn is talking about syncs up so much with conscious capitalism that she's been working on before we had this term. When we talk about the myth of scarcity, we're talking about moving past that win-lose framework by which so many business leaders think about how to orient their stakeholders and instead getting to a place where we have win-win-win solutions, recognizing that we can create more, that we can actually benefit all stakeholders at the same time. And that's the, a starting framework to getting to conscious leadership, where we have people leading our businesses that aren't just analytically intelligent, but get to that emotional, systemic, and even spiritual intelligence to embody the values of the company. I, I'm just so tickled by you being on our board, Lynn, and, and for us having this conversation here. Really, thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you. Well, and, you know, and so I think that brings to then what is the remedy? I mean, you talk about the remedy is sufficiency. So how do we remedy this scarcity and how do we find, move towards that win-win within ourselves, right? So how do we start that kind of conscious leadership journey? How do we start that journey towards sufficiency and waking up to where those toxic myths and lie of scarcity might be ruling us and we don't even know it? Well, um, I, I, call, uh, I call sufficiency the radical surprising truth rather than a solution. It's almost as if you clear away scarcity and uh, you know, kind of just suspend that belief system for a moment what's waiting for our attention is the experience of enough that we are enough that there is enough that we have enough and particularly when we collaborate we prosper uh, particularly when we realize that the earth uh, the great mother is always supporting us with what we really need not always what we want but what we need um, then we have we, we get we become in right relationship with with the, the world and then that changes everything um, because when you know that you have enough and you appreciate that and you live in a in a space of grat gratitude for that it turns into what um, what brother David another wonderful teacher of mine says is great fullness gratefulness is great fullness and your appreciation overflows into natural abundance and all you want to do is share with other people. And so this experience of uh, fulfillment that everybody thinks they will get from getting more, if they stop trying to get more and pay attention to what they have, really make a difference with what they have, it overflows into natural abundance. And that's really what conscious capitalism is <clears throat> because that's a company that serves, that's much more about service than profit. 
that, that the profit is an overflowing appreciation for being of service. Um, there's this uh, possibility then and opportunity that we all collaborate to see how we can do a much better job on a finite planet to give people what they need, not overwhelmingly what they want sometimes, but what they need. You know, Gandhi said there's enough for our need, but not for our greed. And um, I have a, I mean, this might be antithetical to everything that, that we're standing for, conscious capitalism, I hope not. But I have a problem with people who, who, uh, who are compensated way, 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 way beyond what's appropriate. I don't think that's healthy for anybody to swim in that kind of money. You know, we have this now um, guy, Jeff Bezos, approaching being a trillionaire. To me, that's just totally not okay, that anybody would have that kind of financial power. It's just not right. It, you can't possibly stay centered with that kind of responsibility. So this overwhelming um, accumulation of wealth, you know, Gandhi um, often said that poverty is not the problem. What's the problem is um, a, a wealth that's out of range of what's appropriate for a human being. So I think we need to adjust compensation. We need to regulate, particularly the um, the um, uh, digital um, industry. Uh, this is really, uh, as you, if you've seen the movie Social Dilemma, you know that that's that's an industry that's uh, you know completely uh, creating things that no one can be responsible for. They're, they're, they go way beyond what we uh, can morally and ethically understand. Um, so I think. Business has become so powerful uh, that we're at the effect of it. And we need to um, be in charge of it again, be in charge of ourselves, be in charge of our relationships. And really, as Alexander can talk next about this very well, um, really find what is at the very heart and soul of a business that is its service to the world. And if you're rooted there, that changes the way you operate. Uh, that changes the way you think. It changes the way you see. It changes the way you... Um, you navigate your your company, your business, and your future. So I'm going to turn this uh, solution uh, answer over to Alexander because he has the solution. Right? <laughs> well, and what I really appreciated about what you sh said there, Lynn, is that this isn't throwing out important concepts of business like profit or anything like that, but rather understanding what profit actually is, which is a means to serve a higher purpose in business. It's not an end unto itself. And that reorientation, understanding that business exists to serve a higher purpose, to create value for everyone that it touches, finding those win-win-wins for every stakeholder impacted by a business, baking this into the DNA rather than it being an afterthought or a check that a business writes after its productive process to make up for its wrongs in production, and recognize the human nature of this endeavor. So the need for us to have both conscious leadership and conscious cultures so that every person in the business is bringing their whole authentic selves to work and is then actually bettering themselves so that when they leave work, they're a better person afterwards. That it reminds really me of, it reminds me of uh, Kristen Hadid. Uh, she, you know, founder of student made author permission to screw up it, her company, they call profit difference dollars. And so they make it very, very clear that the profit is about is what allows us to make a difference. And I just I that's what was making me think of it. Like what even just the language we use, let's call it difference dollars. Um, and 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 what can we do? And 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 if we serve our purpose well and we live our values and we're conscious about our culture, we're gonna have more difference dollars, you know, to make a difference. And so it it, it yeah. 
So I, I love that. There's something I want to go back to that you said, Lynn, that I think is is really, really important. We talk about kind of this um, this mindset shift of of sufficiency and how like and, and I what I've seen, I can just say not as a business owner or leader, but as a mother, we can instill this in our kids. Mm-hmm. And and we did a really weird experiment, I guess, when my son was three. So that was when he, now he's going to be 10 in two weeks. I don't know where the time goes, but you know, that's when they start having friend birthday party. And at the time you have to invite everybody in their preschool classroom, or you're not being, you know, (laughs) I don't know, a good person or something like that. So he has his birthday party and 20 kids come. So he has 20 presents and he's three. And so we made a decision right then and there that we said, you can open them all up. You'll write thank you notes or we'll help you write thank you notes. And then basically you get to put one on the couch you're going to keep and one goes over here and we're going to donate them, whether it's to Toys for Tots or something like that, because no child needs this much stuff. And he looked at me like I was the worst mother on the planet. (laughs) And, you know, and my friends, when I told them that thought, what are you doing? Like I was a horrible person. And same thing happened when he turned four. But by the time he turned five, he said, mommy, are we going to sort my toys again? And I said, yeah. And then, and he knew that we gave them to Toys for Tots at Christmas time. And he said to me, he goes, well, why are some kids not getting presents from Santa? Were they bad? And I was like, no, I go, Peyton, there are some kids that don't have homes there whatever. And I go, so what do you think a kid who has nothing would like? And then he got into it and he was like, Ooh, they would like this. I want to give this. And the energy started. It took two years of him thinking I was the worst mom in the world probably, but the energy started. And then every year it was, Oh, I think someone would really like this. And he found more joy in going through his toys and selecting what he was going to give away rather than what he was going to keep for himself. And this, oh, oh I, I have to give it. half of it up. Oh, I love and, that. Wow. You know, I mean, I'm sure I'm screwing him up in other ways, but I was, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but it made me think though, we can teach kids like, right. And, and then they go to school and it's a, who has this and who has that and who's wearing this and, and whatnot. And it's funny because when I would tell parents, I'm like, just so you know, like totally appreciate the gifts and yours might be one of them that gets donated. And they're like, that's so cool. Oh, I could never do that with my kid. I'm like, well, why, why not? And, and so it's just so interesting that we feel like it's just the way it is, or we can't do that or whatnot, but kids, kids, kids like to give kids like to help. And so I think about Laura Hall and her book of the ABC conscious capitalism for kids. It's like, we can teach our children this, we can teach our children to be kinder. And that not only can we, uh, live more with sufficiency than we need to have all this stuff, but also we can teach them that, you know, they can be kind to the earth and, you know, they're learning about recycling in, in school and they're learning about, you know, climate change and whatnot. And so I think there's so much that we can, uh, we can teach our kids as well as ourselves and our neighbors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. That's a beautiful example. Wonderful. (laughs) It is. And it gets to the importance of adopting the right mindset and that being the thing that we really do need to shift more than any particular policies or decisions by the company. Is it half of the presence that should be given away? Is it two thirds, one third? There are different interpretations you can have there. But what I love is just getting in that mindset of giving and, and thinking of other people there and the same in business. There are different ways that conscious capitalists take the principles and instill them in their companies. But the key is that they come in with this mindset of a higher purpose of stakeholder orientation, conscious leadership, conscious culture, and really come in with that perspective and that orientation. And that alone makes such a big difference. Yeah. Well, and even there, there uh, 
you talk about this in your book a little bit, Lynn, but I think if I even just go to the individual person who's working at a business, whether it's a conscious business or not, you know, I think this, this whole idea of, of sufficiency and enoughness is even like, I remember there was a period of time where I felt guilty asking for fees for my speaking services, or when I raise my fees, or when you do a consulting contract, you know, the, the asking for what you feel you're worth or what you feel good about, or if someone wants to, um, ask for a raise or, you know, ask for a promotion. Like, I think there's also this, oh, we don't feel that we can ask for what we're worth, but like in a business it's, well, if you don't make a profit, you don't have difference dollars to use Kristen Hadid's term that you can further your purpose. So it's essential. And as a human being, I think, yeah, it's, it's the figuring out what is the sufficiency that we need, right. To, to have a fulfilled life and to, um, and to be able to contribute to our communities and whatnot, but also not being afraid to ask for what worth, not because we're coming from a place of greed, but it's like, no, I recognize like, this is that I'm enough and this is a fair compensation for whatever it is that I I'm providing out into the universe. Yeah. That's a really good point you're making there because that's another thing, particularly for women. Uh, women have a hard time with this thing about being compensated for their service to the world, particularly if they're doing something that has a little bit of a spiritual feel to it. They feel like, well, you can't be paid for that. And there's a, um, a, a real, like a, it's almost like a, a struggle with enoughness for compensation that I find a lot more women have problems with. And then in, in the uh, kind of the male version of whether you're a man or a woman, the male version of that is sometimes overcompensation where people are compensated so, uh, so boldly that they get a little bit inflated about who they are, you know, and <laughs> that, that's also a problem. Yeah, so yeah. There's this beautiful distinction of enough. It's so exquisite, and it's not actually even an amount. It's a way of being, and um, we've lost that in the culture of more, 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 more. We don't know when we've had enough to eat even. We don't know when we worked enough. We don't know when we've been online enough. We don't, everything is like more, 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 and we, we've kind of lost track of this exquisite extraordinary experience of realizing, oh, that's enough. That's perfect. And that's such an amazing feeling when you find it. Um, it, it really is so satisfying. And that's really the source of, of, of the beginning of prosperity. When you know you have enough, then you want to share with other people. Um, uh, and, and that moment of enough generates that experience of wanting to share, which is the source of prosperity. Prosperity doesn't really come from more. It comes from sharing what you have. Yeah. And so it's a really, you know, wonderful thing to teach kids as early as possible, like you're doing and probably Alexander, you're probably doing it too. And I'm trying to do it with my grandchildren. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's, it's the whole, it, it's the mindset of being clear about what you need. I mean, one of the things we talk about in our conscious leadership work is, you know, who are you at your best? What do you need to be your best? What boundaries do you need to put in place and, you know, paying attention. So I know, wow, if I don't get sleep or if I overschedule myself or I don't put healthy boundaries in place, then I get into that scarcity mindset easier. And then I'm crabby and resentful and I'm not feeling, uh, I'm not feeling prosperity. I don't want to give cause I'm tired and then people irritate me or whatever it might be. So I just think that, um, that there's such opportunity there. So I want, I want to, I want to, um, because this podcast is about showing up as a leader, I want to shift gears slightly, but, but it's very much aligned with what we were talking about. So you tell just incredible stories in your book, Lynn, about people showing up as leaders. You talk about like the women, um, in uh, the remote village outside of Senegal, and they had this vision about the lake. And then you talk about the magnificent seven in Bangladesh and you have all these great stories of 
ordinary, I say that lightly in quotes, right? Ordinary people that cho chose to show up and make a difference and, and be listened to and step out onto the arena, as Brene would say, and have their voice be heard. But I know sometimes that's risky and, and we don't like to do that. And so this is a question that I want you both to answer. And I lo love to ask all of my guests. Um, so one is, I know that it's a human experience that at various times, we all kind of have our own not enough or self-limiting story uh, that we can find ourselves kind of trapped in. So Lynn, I'll, I'll start with you. And then Alexander, I'll ask you the same question. But What's a self-limiting story that you find that you tell yourself? And then when it shows up, how do you move beyond it so you can still make an impact as a leader? Um, uh, let's see, a self-limiting story for me. Well, there's, I have, I have a whole bunch of them. So I'll just <laughs> pick one. Just pick one, yeah. <laughs> Is um, that I didn't get enough done. And when I think I've not gotten enough done, it's when I'm kind of like in overwhelm, I've got, you know, you, you could say I, I'm in sort of constant overwhelm. Um, and <clears throat> when I go to sleep uh, at night and I the, the, the thoughts I'm having is I didn't get enough done, I didn't get enough done, it's all dribbling over till the next day or the next week or the next month. Um, I do something that I, it's like a simple little technique, but it actually pretty much works. I say cancel. Uh, I don't say it out loud. Sometimes I do, but um, uh, cancel to my brain because your brain is very obedient. And then I replace what uh, my, I didn't get enough done. I didn't get enough done. It's all dribbling over to tomorrow too. Look at all the things I got done today. Oh my God. And I can't even remember the morning. It's so long ago. I did the interview with Rosie. We did that. Da, 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 da. We did da, 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 da. And, and, and you start to catalog what you have accomplished. You replace what you worry about not getting done with what you have accomplished. And it actually becomes a habit um, at the end of the day to review what you accomplished and what you're grateful for rather than what you didn't get done and what's dribbling over to the next day and what you feel bad about. And you could say cancel to your little brain and then uh, and then replace it with the things you did accomplish uh, and you feel so much better and it, it, it also helps you sleep. So that's one little trick that I use. <laughs> I love I love that. Alexander, how about you? So like you, Lynn, there are a lot that I could I could reach into and pull out. But the one I'll share that comes to me the most, it's similar to yours, but slightly different in that I, I focus so much on results so often that if the results don't turn out the way that I had hoped they would or that we had worked towards, it becomes it, it's it, I feel as though I've done something wrong and that I haven't accomplished what I wanted to. And whether you look to yoga tradition or stoicism from from classical western philosophy there's so much of a need for us to really understand what we do have control over ourselves and our own actions and let go of the things that we don't actually have control over and recognize the difference between the two that i often find myself going back to reminding myself of what we do have control over what i personally do and focusing on bettering and improving that and letting go so much of attachment to certain outcomes that maybe I don't have control over or that we don't have control over. Yeah. You know, I, I love that. One of the things it reminds me of, this is an exercise that I give to, to people, whether I'm doing individual or teamwork, but we've also started adopting it as a dinnertime conversation sometimes. And sometimes we'll just say, hey, what were three good things from the day and trying to really look at gratitude. But one of the things we do, along with what you said, Alexander, is we'll say, you know, what's one, uh, one thing that you're grateful for today or one thing that went well today. And then we'll say, what's something you learned about yourself? And it's usually related to the something that didn't go well. But if you learned something about yourself in it, or you took a learning from it, there's value in that, right? To kind of help shift that, oh, that didn't go the way I wanted or oh, that didn't happen. So love that. 
Um, and then one more question for you two, and then we're going to go to our rapid fire, which is one of one of my favorite parts. Uh, so Lynn, you can think work or personal life, but what is an impactful way that you are showing up as a leader in your life these days that you're really proud of? Let's see. Um, I, I'm a really early riser. Um, this is, we're doing this at 7 a.m. I, I, I get up somewhere between five and six and I, um, I spend time before sunrise sort of being in the natural world. So I go outside every day. I do this thing called the par course, which is an exercise course, but it's not so much about exercise for me as it is being outdoors and, um, and being in the presence of the rising sun. And I read a book, which probably everybody knows, called The 5 a.m. Club. I don't know if you've read that book. Um, and it really did impact me, the, the message of the book, about there is this power uh, of an hour before the sun rises. And I work in the Amazon, and the Amazonian people, they get up two hours before the sun rises and do a whole series of rituals. So that really centers me so that I can begin my day with... Um, uh, let's see, with connection to the earth, really, I think that's what it is, uh, which is where I find the most power, the most uh, experience of, um, of centeredness, the most experience of, you know, kind of the great beyond. And I'm not so much in my little life with my little concerns and my little to-do list, even if it's a long one. Um, and then uh, I get started in my day really early, and then I end a lot earlier so that I have more time at night. This is really during the pandemic. Um, because everything's online, and I, I think we get fatigued a lot more than we know. So if I start fresh and I end earlier, I do a better job of leading, I do a better job of communicating, and I do, do a better job of keeping myself centered, which is um, sometimes a little challenging in these crazy times. We didn't talk about the Pachamama Alliance, but the Pachamama Alliance is also my passion and my oh. organization, and um, we're having our big annual event online, which, you know, we usually gather about 1,000 or 1,500 people um, on November 19th. So we can oh, have nice. 5,000 people on our online 75-minute. We have Jane Goodall and Van Jones oh. and uh, then some of our Indigenous people from the Amazon. And it's going to be such a, an amazing thing. Yeah. The election, and the election may be, um, what, no matter what happens, it'll probably be contested. So probably we'll still be in this sort of uh, difficult time. So uh, at November 19th, we're going to create uh, 75 minutes of pure possibility and power. So that's what I'm doing right now. Anyway, that's my current MO. And I change it up all the time because, you know, nothing works forever. So you have to kind of bring a new circus to town all the time to get, get, keep yourself, you know, on, on your toes. But that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. Ad adapt and flex, right? Yeah, adapt and <laughs> Alexander, how about you? What's one impactful way you're showing up as a leader in your life these days that you're proud of? So we're recording this during COVID time. We've all experienced incredible disruption and conscious capitalism's entire business model flew out the window with this. We relied on in-person events ranging from our national conferences down to local chapter happy hours and social gatherings. And we've had to get into a very creative space. And what I've been really proud of, not just for me, but for the entire Conscious Capitalism organization has been this reorientation towards what is our purpose and how does that show up in these very different times when our traditional activities aren't physically possible anymore. 
And we've seen the team get incredibly creative, really think about the value that we're offering to each one of our stakeholder groups and trying to support them through this. And coming up with new and innovative ways to connect conscious capitalists virtually to support them through this crisis and to share their stories with the world that even when we get to the other side of this pandemic to the new normal everyone keeps talking about, we're going to come out of this with more lessons and more innovative solutions that I think we're going to carry forward because they just make sense. And we're using this time to get creative and the team is leaning into being creative and creating value to serve our higher purpose in the best way I could imagine during these challenging times. So that's something I've been incredibly proud of to see. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, pivot has become the word of 2020. This podcast is a result of a lot of speaking at conferences got canceled. And how do you make a difference and put your voice out in the world? And how do you bring people together, right? And challenge mm -hmm. people to think better and to shift their mindset if you can't come together. So, you know, it, totally get that. All right, so my, I like to wrap up each podcast uh, with rapid fire set of questions um, that are just kind of first thing that pops in your mind. So I think because we've been going Lynn and Alexander for each question, I'll just kind of uh, popcorn it. Um, so these are these are kind of fun. Uh, we'll see what happens. But so this is fill in the blank. Living authentically is. Uh, authentically is um, uh, a joy. Important. Love it. When the world is presenting an opening for you to show up as a leader, but you don't feel like it, what do you do? Um, I uh, think about my grandchildren and I get to work. Remind myself what really matters and use that as my North Star. Love it. When's the last time you were courageous and how did you show up? Uh, in a conversation with my daughter uh, the night before last when I shared something I'd never told her that was scary for me and uh, really made a difference to her. Awesome. In a conversation with a key stakeholder with conscious capitalism and talking about how we get to aligned interests to create that win-win-win. Nice. And, and just coming with that mindset helps with helps with finding the way forward. Absolutely. Our mindset's so important. Um, okay. Something people would be surprised to know about you. Um, uh, that I love to cook. What's your, what's your go-to uh, meal or your go-to dish? Uh, me? Yeah. Oh gosh. Oh, I have a lot of them. I, 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 I'm very good with salmon and I love making um, a, a family recipe called goulash. Ooh, nice. Nice. <laughs> All right. Alexander, how about you? Something people um, be surprised to know about you. That I that my pastimes that I really enjoy include scuba diving and surfing. Mm. I grew up in the pain, East Coast and picked ten, up surfing since I moved to California. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. It reminds me of what let my people go surfing, right? So okay. Um, <laughs> all right. So this is this is one of my favorite icebreakers um, that I do with groups, but it's kind of fun. So I call it the four C's. So if reality and money or whatever was no object um what what car would you want to drive if any um what country would you like to visit what cuisine would you want to eat it doesn't have to be related to that country and what uh celebrity living or dead would you love to eat that cuisine with car for me would be a tesla um, mine too yeah uh, what was the second makes one three of us uh yeah okay three three teslas here we go country you want to visit to visit um yep 
Oh, I've been I've been pretty much everywhere, but I haven't been to New Zealand. New Zealand. Nice. Nice. And, and I've been to a lot of countries as well, but I've never been to Japan and really want to visit. Nice. Cuisine you would like to eat. Doesn't have to be related to the country. Uh, uh, Italian. Yes. Indian. Oh, I love them both. Love them both. <laughs> and what celebrity living or dead would you love to eat that cuisine with? Um, uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. Alexander, how about you? Teddy Roosevelt. He must have been a fascinating dinner companion. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, next question. Your favorite go-to movie? Julia with uh, Jane Fonda and Vanessa Redgrave and Meryl Streep, 1977. Nice. Mm. Casablanca. I watch that at least a few times every year. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, your go-to song is? Oh, gosh. I'm a, I play the piano and sing and uh, love music, so I don't know if I could say my go-to song. Uh, I love... Um, uh, oh, gosh, from West Side Story, Somewhere. Nice. Um, and I don't know if I have a single song. I, I would say at this point, my go-to genre is, is punk music, though, actually. No way. <laughs> Surfing and punk. I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, so this made me think of your story, Lynn, where you're talking about dancing with the women in, in the desert, but your signature dance move. My signature dance move. Um, well, I just love to dance all together. So I don't know. The uh, uh, boogie. Boogie. <laughs> boogie. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll have a dance party when we can see each other in person. Okay. Alexander, how about you? I don't know if I can claim to have a signature dance move. Uh, although when I'm dancing with a partner, love to throw a spin in there. You got to have a spin. A good spin makes the world go around. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what, what's one thing, and I say that lightly, I mean, like it could be a thing, it could be whatever, but what's something you can't live without? Oh, uh, my piano. Nice. Um, pen and paper. I still like to write things down, especially when I'm brainstorming and just ideating. I, I am totally... I, I'm hands on with you. I still, this is how I read, right? I highlight and I tab and I just, I cannot get into the electronic books. I can't do it. I, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Two more. Uh, something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy. Making a green smoothie in the morning. Nice. Uh, our pet cats. They just light up a room. <laughs> what are their names? Howie and Debbie. Nice. Love it. Love it. As we speak, I'm having um, secret invisible fence installed. I've been working on a project to bring home two cavapoos for Peyton's birthday in two weeks to surprise him. So yes, we're, I'm, we're, we're going to now have fur friends in our house. Aww. By the time this comes out, it, it won't be a surprise. He will have them here. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and last but not least, what are you grateful for right now? My family particularly my husband, but my, my children, my grandchildren, my, my whole family. Love that. Um, that, that my loved ones, family and friends are all healthy and safe through these challenging times. 
Well, and as you always say, Lynn, right? I mean, having gratitude is, is part of that shift from that mindset of not enough to sufficiency. So I think that that's a perfect way. Um, I want to thank you both so much for the work that you do and for seriously taking the time with uh, me this morning and for our listeners and just really inspiring people to show up and make a difference regardless. I feel like we can make a difference in our family. We can make a difference in our community. Um, you know, we don't have to have that title or role. And I think you both um, have, have such great experience and nuggets of wisdom for people to latch on to. So I'm so, so appreciative and grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you for giving us this opportunity, Rosie. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to Show Up as a Leader. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Rosie Ward, and you can find me online at drrosieward.com where you'll be able to sign up for my newsletter, check out the books I'm reading, and hear from the people I'm talking to. You can also get more information on what I'm up to professionally, including my coaching and speaking services. You can also find me on LinkedIn at rward, Facebook and Instagram at drrosieward, or email me at rosie at drrosieward.com. And I just want to remind you to remember that you have the choice every day to show up as a leader. So choose courage over comfort, embrace your humanity, and never, ever dull your sparkle. Take care, everyone.